Hi, I am Cassie. And I'm Evelyn. Welcome to the Stream of Life podcast, where we share stories that inspire actions for peace, security, and justice. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have the honor to be in conversation with Reverend Celestine Musegura. Dr. Musegura is an ordained Baptist minister who was born and raised in Rwanda. Dr. Musegura is the founder of the African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministry, ALAM, and also served as its president and CEO from its inception to his retirement in March 2020. He is an international speaker and author in areas of leadership, peace building, biblical forgiveness, and tribal reconciliation. For chicken warning, this podcast contains stories about the Rwandan genocide that some people may find traumatizing. On the other hand, Dr. Musekura will speak about reconciliation, forgiveness and healing, and we hope the people will be touched and feel inspired by his stories. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. And our first question is, you are the founder of African Leaders and Reconciliation Ministries, in short, ALAM. What motivated you, Dr. Musakura, to found ALAM? Thank you, Dr. Hevelin. Uh, my uh, motivation came, unfortunately, came from the tragedy that uh, happened to my people, my nation, my country of Rwanda. Uh, in 1994, I had or been involved in the ministry before the genocide. I had been a pastor, I had been a church administrator within the Baptist Church in Rwanda. But uh, the genocide took place when I was in my last semester at the African International University in Nairobi. The most troubling thing that uh, motivated me was the failure uh, of the church uh, to become uh, an instrument of hope an instrument of reconciliation, an instrument of peace, really because the church became part of the problem rather than uh, standing as a neutral or safe place. The church leaders, when I say about the church, it was really uh, most of the church leaders became more tribal than uh, Christ-like. And so the failure of the church to to represent Christ troubled me because I felt that we leaders had failed because we produced uh, what I call uh, baptized pagans. People came to church, but uh, they were more tribal than Christians. And so what I found was that the tribal identity was more stronger than the Christian identity. And that's where I felt that uh, if there's going to be hope for our nation, especially if the church that understands the value and biblical principles of forgiveness, reconciliation, peace building, if the church is going to make an impact to call people to repentance, to forgive and reconcile, the church needs to embrace the identity to be Christ-like first, to be Christians first, and then to be Rwandese or Hutu or Tutsi second. So, so the failure of the church and the turning into tribalism rather than Christian uh, lifestyle motivated me to start Alarm so that we train leaders who reconcile relationships to transform uh, communities. That's really the failure and the fact that we had made tribal Christian rather than making disciples of Christ. We made more converts. We didn't make disciples. So that's why I said we had churches full of baptized pagans uh, who were not really disciples of Christ whose identity in Christ perceived their tribal identity. And so that's when I, why I started 
to train then leaders, religious leaders, pastors from different denominations to understand what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to be to be identified with Christ, and then what the role of a Christian, a of Christ, in a divided uh, tribal community that will become peacemakers, that will become uh, reconcilers, that will become instrument of hope, that will become the model of forgiveness, that will become the agents of reconciliation, that we embody forgiveness as we have been forgiven. So that's what motivated me to start Alarm. Wow, thank you very much. And so, Dr. Msakula, could you just tell us briefly about what is Alarm and what do you do? Yeah, thank you. So as um, you mentioned, Alarm stands for African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. Really, our, our vision uh, is a big vision is... Uh, Africa without tribal or religious violence. And uh, our mission is to train, to develop servant leaders in the African church and the community who reconcile and transform lives affected by violence and injustice. What that means is really we specifically say we develop servant leaders in the church and the community because uh, we emphasize servant leaders because our leaders, whether it's from the political leaders or church leaders, what they have known and the model they have followed is either the colonial leadership or the kind of African chief mentality. It's not really the uh, model of servant leaders where we lead so that uh, uh, the, those who are led grow and become more better and become more safer and become more Christ-like. And so we want leaders who first put the interest of the led ahead of their own personal interest. So that's really why we say, you no, know, our leaders are fed because they either lead like tribes or like uh, just like for themselves or their tribes or their home, not for their own people. And also we... We talk about leaders in the African church and community because uh, most of the time the church in Africa, they, we have focused on clergy. And uh, we have failed to realize that those, for example, in Rwanda, those who were involved in killing, those who were uh, motivating people to kill, those who were uh, soldiers, those who were mayors, those who were government officials, every Sunday they were in the pews. And so, but we don't look at them as servants, as leaders. We don't look at them as ministers. And so we try to remove this uh, big distinction between the clergy and the lay people by helping the lay people to understand that they also have a call. They are calling to serve. It may not be on the pulpit like the pastor, but wherever God has put them as Christians, they have a calling. Their ministry is, le is not lesser than is no less than the pastors because Christ has called them to be lawyers, to be police officers, to be judges, to be mayor, to be members of parliament as Christians where they are, that is their mission field. So they have to know that they are serving Christ in those positions. That's why we train them to think like Christ, to think like Christian, to say, no, I'm not just a professional lawyer. No, I am a Christian who happens to be a lawyer. So then how do I do my job separately or differently from a lawyer who is not a Christian? And how do I put Christ's model first where I am? 
And a, the goal is not just to train them for anything, but how do they begin to address the issues uh, of reconciliation and transforming our communities? And transformation is just broader. It's not just spiritual because uh, we have also fared, especially the evangelical church. The Catholic church has done a better job in, in really holistic ministry. The uh, evangelicals uh, sometimes focus more on spirituality and uh, we forget the social the political, the environment. And so we want the leaders we train in the church to be global in their view and to be holistic in their approach that uh, they can transform lives affected by injustice and violence. And specifically, we say to transform life affected by violence and injustice because those violent injustice are those that are bringing pain and sorrow and sadness and killings and displacement and refugees and uh, uh, looting and and all the evils that our people in Africa are suffering from is because of this violence and injustice committed by those who are supposed to lead them. And so that's really what we do. And so through the training, through seminars, through institutes, uh, long-term, short-term, we do those training. We work with the women leaders because women have been left behind. So we train both men and women. We deal with the equal, we try to deal with the cultural insensitivity where the uh, African culture has put some, um, uh, the gender, that's where the women in a corner. So we try to change that the dignity of all as God sees everyone. Thank you very much. Very, Thank very you. interesting. So then could you share with us what your experience about forgiveness, reconciliation, and conflict resolution in relation to the Rwandan genocide? Thank you, Kirsty. That's a very tough question and uh, may take two days. But uh, uh, I would say personal experience, uh, I would begin with personal um, in the sense of really my personal, me as Celestine, and uh, my family in my village. Uh, as I mentioned, when genocide happened, I was living in Kenya. I was going to school, to graduate school in Kenya. Many people in my village actually escaped. They became refugees. They went to Congo. Three years later, they returned to Rwanda. But as most of the people uh, have not known, the genocide top 1994 by July, by the killings that followed, there was more revenge killing and that followed until 1998, uh, 1999. And um, uh, unfortunately, in uh, December of 1997, uh, my village was attacked uh, by the men in the, uh, in the uniform, the, uh, the, the army and the neighbors. They killed about 70 people in my village. Uh, among them, uh, seven members of my on the family, uh, I had that they were killed. And uh, but about six months later, actually, I learned that it was uh, not seven; it was five members of my own family were murdered. And so my mother was killed. My um, uh, my mother survived the killing, uh, but I was told when I was there in Dallas. By then, I was doing my PhD in Dallas. I was told about that my mother, my father, uh, my brother, his wife, and two children were murdered. Uh, but uh, my mother survived and my niece survived because my mother fainted. So she was under the dead bodies between 
four and five hours, she was uh, under the dead bodies. She fainted. She lost conscience when uh, the people were being shot. And so five hours, four hours, five hours, she gained conscience. She pulled herself uh, under the pile of dead bodies. She found a baby, two years old, nursing a dead mother. She picked the baby. She didn't know who was this baby until like four days later. That's when she discovered this was her granddaughter. At this time, she ran in the bush. From the bush, she continued with others in the Congo. And so I did not know that she was alive, as I said, until six months later, uh, when uh, someone from Congo found her and let my brother who comes uh, after me, who was who is also a pastor who was living in another city. That's why I survived. And my brother uh, sent me a message that uh, he, my mother was alive. Of course, here in Dallas, we had done a memorial service for seven uh, members of my family. And so for me to learn that she was alive, he was, it was like a miracle when you have, uh, you know, made a funeral service for your mother and, uh, uh, and your niece, now they survived. Uh, it was a gift from God. But one year later, I was teaching others how to forgive. I had to go to meet, confront the relatives and those who murdered my family. And so I was able to go to Rwanda and uh, met those uh, uh, relatives and uh, some members uh, whose sons and whose fathers had been part of the killing and I had to really practice what I was teaching. It was not easy, but by God's grace, uh, we were able to talk about it and then begin to work on how do we prevent this from happening? How do we help our children? So we, uh, my family and I, uh, my wife and I made a covenant that some of those who murdered my family and my neighbors, uh, members of the church that I had been uh, uh, pastoring uh, that I had pastored for over five years. So some of those people murdered, had, I had baptized them, I had married them, so I knew them. Uh, but uh, it had been a while since I was in that village. But um, we made a commitment to put to school, so we have been educating the children of those who murdered because some, even in this process of forgiveness, people say, you know, how do you know? Or how, how would I know that I'm forgiven? So sometimes, it's not enough to say I forgive you, but it is very important that we make uh, even steps to actions that we show surely that we are forgiven. So we have put probably more than six, seven kids from those who murdered my father, my brother, his wife and kids and my neighbors. We have put them in school, some universities. We started a, a high school for girls actually in Rwanda. And some of those kids have gone to that um, uh, boarding school and we pay for their fees. So that's my personal journey and um, a few, uh, one of the relatives of those who murdered my family, he's uh, a board member of the alarm organization in Rwanda. So we have been working together to teach others that it is possible to stop revenge. It is possible to forgive, to give up our right to be right, to give up our anger, to give, to give up and walk towards uh, uh, how do we resolve conflict? How do we begin now to understand when there's conflict? How do we resolve it without running into taking machetes or being more destructive? So that's my personal journey, but uh, we have 
uh, helped different communities and just I am not the only one. There are more people in Rwanda who have reached out through training, going through the, the trauma and helping them to deal with the anger and the bitterness and then beginning to heal and then to uh, make the next step to go to, to sit together with those that uh, committed atrocities against them and their families. One of the villages where uh, our lady um, Alice, uh, has, uh, her husband was murdered by neighbor Emmanuel, uh, Emmanuel is a Hutu with other Hutus. They killed over 20 people in the village of Alice. They left Alice half dead. Her daughter of two years old was murdered. Emmanuel spent uh, eight years in jail, but uh, after serving what we call justice, he could not find joy. He, he was ashamed. He was hiding every day because he could not uh, see how he can meet Alice and face her and uh, with what he had done and uh, had cut her hand. So Alice has no hand. And anyway, so we were able to work with them and uh, bring them together. It took a long time. But as we speak today, uh, Alice, she's the chairperson of their community group in their village. And Emmanuel is the vice chairperson. They have been building homes of those whose husband had murdered. They are building homes for whose those uh, wives whose husbands have been in jail for 18 years and they will never come out. So a community of both the killers and the killed, they realize both they have both been both the victim and the perpetrators. As Alice said, I, Emmanuel and his friends killed my, physically my daughter and my husband and other people. And he said, but I have killed them and their children, their wives in my heart. So I'm no long, I'm not better than them. It's only the opportunity I didn't have to kill them uh, because they have a killing again begins in the heart. And so, so both they have recognized that they are both victims and perpetrators. Now they have found that together they can be their future. So those are personal experience, both uh, personally in my family, but also personally in the community in Rwanda, personal painful journey, but hopeful journeys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Could you say more about your experience of meeting those people who had killed your family, who brought so much suffering to your mother? How was that experience the first time you met them? In fact, um, even before I met them face to face, the first time when I heard about the killings, when I was actually here in Dallas, knowing that I have been teaching others, I'm a pastor, I'm a, an ordained minister, I felt angry. I wanted to, to revenge, uh, not necessarily to go to kill them, but somehow I wanted to know who did it because. Uh, uh, I want maybe to avoid them. Maybe I want. I want. Maybe I, maybe I want to make a bad prayer. I don't know. But for some reasons, I felt angry. I felt bitter. Uh, I was angry first against God, and then angry against those. And I want to know them so that I can direct my anger to those that I know. But by God's grace, God confirmed me that same night that I need to forgive them before even I knew who they were. And so really because of the confrontation, uh, the night I wrestled with God, uh, when I had, uh, I got a fax, I was reading a fax of what had happened that early morning here in Dallas, Texas, I, God wrestled with me that I don't have to know who they are before I forgave them. So I 
did forgive them. I told God, I can forgive them uh, if you give me grace. And uh, as I did, as I was able to do that uh, early morning. But when I saw them face to face, again, I felt angry. That's when, again, the Spirit of God reminded me that I'm seeing them through the eyes of tribe because uh, I was seeing the tribes that killed my tribe. Um, people were Hutus, were killed by the Tutsis. I began to become what I hated, to become a tribe. And so in that moment, actually what I did, I asked them to forgive me first because I had no right because the people, actually I was angry against. They are not the ones who took the machete. They are not, not the ones who shot. They were their fathers or their brothers because those, uh, uh, I didn't meet those who killed. I met their relatives. And so my anger was directed to the wrong people just because they belong to their family, they belong to that tribe. And that's when the Lord, again, the Spirit of God told me, I'm becoming tribal. I should not punish them because they are the people who did, didn't ask even them permission. And the people I was angry against were not even part of the, uh, they didn't even know the plans. And so uh, for me, it was really, it was guided by my belief in God, by listening to the Spirit of God, by knowing that justice prevents me from punishing the wrong person. And so, uh, but secondly, these uh, brothers and fathers and uh, relatives, they said, even though we're not there, please forgive us for what our parents, from, uh, for what our sons, our brothers did. So how we say it was vicarious repentance that I was able to also do vicarious forgiveness. It was not easy, but by God's grace, by this immediate uh, forgiveness, by realizing that no matter what I do can bring back my dead father, brother, uh, wife and child and my daughter's sister, there was no punishment I can inflict on those relatives that can bring them back. In fact, what happened uh, after we uh, forgave, uh, I placed my mother who survived in the hands of Leonard, whose father and, brother and relatives had murdered this, my family. So to really walk towards forgiveness and reconciliation, I had to trust one of their relatives to take care of my mother who survived the killing of his relatives. And so that was the hardest because everybody thought I was crazy even my own brothers and say how can you yes we trust him but how can you trust his relatives uh how can we trust somebody whose relatives murdered this with my family how can we tell him to take off my mom our mom because i was here in dallas my other brother was far from the village my mother didn't want to go to stay in the city so and she had nobody to take care of us so what we're we going to do it is towards that journey that uh, my mother would call this son, who happened also to be a Christian, that my son, yet his relatives murdered this my family. And this Leonard, they will call my mother, mother, when his relatives had murdered her husband, her neighbor. So, so it was not uneasy, but, you know, the restrictive justice uh, will teach us that we need to put an end to the cycle of violence by creating a new hope. But also by virtue of being a Christian, areas that forgiveness is not cheap grace. The forgiver pays for the forgiveness. 
And so it was those virtues that uh, made it possible. That's why we really come to believe that Christian message forgiveness, as Christians, we practice these virtues, we can influence others to imitate and maybe uh, to do what I call the imperfect forgiveness. Because we are human, we cannot uh, forgive like God does, we, but we can achieve an imperfect forgiveness, which is better than the alternative. Powerful information. Yeah, so um, your organization, Alam, is currently serving in eight countries in both East and Central Africa, where you already shared with us that you train a lot of leaders in conflict resolution and reconciliation. Can you share with us, like, what's the contributions of these leaders to peace building and reconciliation um, currently in Africa? Oh, thank you, Case, for the question. Uh, let me begin with actually when we talk about conflict resolution, when we talk about reconciliation, we began to really work with, uh, as I mentioned, that we tried to respond to injustice and uh, violence. We, 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 were, we started training also lawyers, especially Christian lawyers and judges, on restorative justice, on not just to uh, produce the winner and the loser, because those are the things that have produced revenge. Because in Africa, you win because not because you have justice, you win because you can bribe the judge. Mm. You win because you can afford a lawyer. And so when those uh, in the community, in the families uh, happen, when there's a loser and a winner, the, the loser will find justice on their own. That's why they go to kill and, and so forth. So we began to train lawyers on how to mediate and how to resolve conflict in a win-win situation. But also those lawyers, we began to help them understand that there are people who are victims of injustice who are in jail. So, for example, with training them, we have created uh, legal aid clinics in Rwanda, in, in uh, Uganda, in, uh, in Congo. And those lawyers in Congo, even during this last uh, 12 months, last year and part of this year, they have released in jail, took their cases, they have released over 18 minors who were in jail of, uh, of adults. And some were just put in jail because their neighbors wanted this kid who, whose parents died during the war to go to jail so they can get their land. And um, so, so this is justice. In, um, uh, for example, in, in South Sudan, in Pibo, uh, the Dinka and the Murule, these are two different tribes who have been fighting and the Murule had been kidnapping the children of the Dinkas. And so they will fight. And so one time, literally, they had, uh, I think, kidnapped about 18 young people. And we knew there was going to be a fight. And when they fight, more women die, more children die, uh, more people die, innocent people. So we worked with, uh, with the Anglican church and the Presbyterian church in the, those two communities the leaders from the church and the communities, and we were able actually to get the leaders to work together. And they brought back, for the first time, actually, they brought back those children and they removed the barriers they had built between the tribes. And even the UN was surprised that an organization like Alarm can actually make those differences. And so um, we have seen uh, those uh, communities leaders take the stand. We worked with the uh, Muslim leaders and uh, Christian leaders in the uh, Nuba Mountains, uh, where the Arabs and the Nubians have been fighting. The government of Khartoum, uh, during Bashir, has been killing 
black. And so we uh, uh, began to work with the uh, religious leader to help them understand that both uh, Muslim and Christians, they uh, Abrahamic faith, they all speak about peace, but they fail because they follow the teachings of extremists. So we worked with the religious leaders, community leaders in um, uh, one of the two communities to the borders. And do you know, the, for the first time in six, in six, seven years, these leaders were able to exchange markets. So the women could cross to the market and uh, the women could cross the, the village to, go to, to fetch water in the other side. And people were able to cross their cows to graze in the other people's land, which would have created conflict and, and war before. By teaching them how to resolve conflict, helping them to know that the future is intertwined together. They don't have to listen to people in the big cities who never even have their children killed, their wives killed, their able to kill. They need to realize that the future, their own communities in their hands, if they can resolve conflict in a way that they think about their wife, their children, their future, rather than following the teachers or for extremists in the mosque or in the church or in the government. So there are many communities, again, of course, I shared with you in Rwanda how these communities or for the Alice community and Emmanuel community, now they are building homes together, but they killed each other in 1994. And so again, it is because leaders begin to understand that I lead for peace. We lead for reconciliation. We lead for transformation. And so we are seeing more and more, I can, if we had more time, I can tell you more leaders in Uganda, in northern Uganda, who have been working together, even within the denominations, who have not been working together as denominations, begin to work together, begin to share the pulpit, begin to exchange, uh, preach a Baptist, go to preach to Pentecostal and Pentecostal and Anglican, and so that remove those whether it is tribe or denominations or race that divide us, how do we remove the barriers? How can leaders be models in really removing the barriers that separate them and create uh, this uh, trust and uh, create bridges that uh, our children and our wives can use to cross over so that we become a community of hope? So there are those uh, examples that uh, we have going on with our staff in Eastern Central Africa. And by God's grace, because of that, uh, like our leaders, uh, one of our leaders in Sudan has been nominated on the commission for the National Commission for Reconciliation. Uh, Burundian leader uh, was on the constitutional reform, the committee to change the constitution. Our leaders in different countries, they have been uh, recognized as uh, really uh, promoters of peace. And they can speak to the, not only to the leaders in the church, but they are now trusted by the government officials. We train members of parliament uh, in Burundi. We have trained police officers uh, to work together. We have trained members of parliament and senators in Burundi from different parties to actually resolve conflict within even their own parliament. So, so those are a few examples that uh, are happening in East and Central Africa. Thank you, Dr. Msakura. You are doing a lot. By God's grace, we have staff who are Africans who know the situation for them. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a job for them. It's a matter of life and death for their people. And so when there's trouble, they stay. They don't run away. You know, they, are, they don't give up and run away. They, they are persistent and they are trusted and they know what they are doing. So 
So mine is the joy to see them, really, to empower them, to encourage them and give them resources to do what they can do. Thank you very much. Yeah. You and the entire LAM group, you are an example that we should follow when it comes to peace building, forgiveness and reconciliation. And because of time, we'll have to stop here today. But as we have mentioned, Dr. Msekura, again, thank you so much. And we will be inviting you again. I think our listeners will enjoy listening to you again. Thank you again so much. And I wish you all the best in all what you are doing. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, I pray that God will bless your work as you uh, train and motivate and encourage others to get involved. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Stream Apply podcast. Stay tuned for more stories to come. If you have stories you would like to share, email us at streamapplyblog at gmail.com. Violence, insecurity, and injustice everywhere is a threat to peace, security, and justice everywhere. We are so interconnected than we imagine or wish to believe.